Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find single tracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today our guest is Brad Copeland. Brad worked his way up the bike tuning chain from shop mechanic to a full-time position at Specialized Bicycles, and he eventually landed a spot wrenching for the brand's domestic teams. His racing and career interests lay deep in the dirt side of cycling, and when asked to travel with the Specialized World Cup cross-country athletes to a few events, he excitedly accepted. Copeland developed lasting friendships with several of the riders, eventually becoming the primary traveling wrench for Kate Courtney, who would then go on to win both a rainbow jersey and a World Cup overall title. When Kate switched to the Scott Schramm race team, she was able to bring Copeland with her, which doesn't happen in cross-country as often as it does in downhill racing. The pair are working hard to prepare for what the 2020 season holds, and Giroux recently chatted with Copeland to get the story from his side of the pits. This discussion wasn't originally intended to be a podcast, but given Copeland's passionate descriptions, we wanted to share the raw recording with you here. Enjoy. How'd you end up uh, at the level you're at? You know, as of like, I remember being five years old. Uh, I think it was my five-year-old Christmas. In my stocking, I got a copy of Mountain Bike Action Magazine, among other things like Road and Track and uh, some stuff my dad threw in there. Yeah, um, I was like into BMX already, kind of like in the in the way that a five-year-old could be, who's like seen the X Games and thought it was you know totally rad. Yeah, and uh, and had a bike kind of like that, and wanted to go build a ramp in my driveway. And, yeah. Uh, so my dad was just like, "Yeah, whatever. Here's some magazines," and um, not anticipating maybe how much of an impact that would have. But uh, right, I kind of became obsessed with with bikes, and I, was, I had a bike, and I didn't have a car, obviously. So yeah, uh, that was something I could kind of like emulate, and um, I just sort of fell in love with riding like really early, and <clears throat> kind of actually wanted to. As I got bigger, like get a you know more serious BMX bike. My parents sort of I wouldn't say discourage it, but kind of encouraged me to get like a mountain bike because or something more uh, useful, you know, generally useful than a BMX bike. As I got older and bigger and needed a new bike, and um, yeah, and so I got a, a mountain bike. It was a, a rigid Marin steel uh, mountain bike that. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of lusted after and saved my money for for a long time, and uh, I was about eight years old, I think, when I when I got my first mountain bike. So um, that's when I started mountain biking. Uh, loved it, and just sort of that's all I did, and became really interested in all of the like technical nuances. As I would just you know, I had like three or four magazine subscriptions and would memorize every catalog and 
yeah. uh, you know, going to the bike shop and like know more than they did about the products, you know, because I just like <laughs> sat there memorized catalog and magazine after magazine. Totally. Um, and so when I was 11 years old, I moved to North Carolina from Pennsylvania uh-huh. and, um, there was a shop very close to where my new house was. And I would go in there like every day, just looking around like alone, you know, and they were like, who is this <laughs> random kid riding his bike in here every day, just like staring at stuff. And, yeah. um, they started sort of encouraging me to like come on group rides. And there was a, there were some mountain bike races locally, mm-hmm. uh, at a place in the town that I lived in, which was Winston Salem, North Carolina. Okay. And, uh, so they kind of like got me to go out there and give it a try. And, I got second place in my first race. I was like, oh, this is fun. Maybe I'll win if I Whoa. keep like, trying and like, you know, get a better bike. And, uh, one thing led to another. And when I was 12, I started working at that bike shop, kind of just like sweeping and cleaning and stocking shelves and maybe fixing flat tires if I, you know, yeah. really was feeling confident that day. Yeah. Um, and that's when I started learning. And, and they, it was kind of because they basically let me learn to sort of keep my bike running and upgrade it and you know do little things to mm-hmm. without having to actually pay retail for stuff uh, as a 12 year old um you know, <laughs> sure. i was working i was working being compensated not not a lot uh, yeah but a, a, enough to continue doing it and they could tell i just really liked it and it was like super enthusiastic and like generally knowledgeable like, i didn't know shit about working on the bikes yet but uh i knew a lot about them yeah just from reading the specs and stuff and memorizing them and uh you know to this day retain a lot of very period specific knowledge from like the, <laughs> the late nineties about bikes that uh, I would say would rival anyone and uh, nice. <laughs> whether it's worth it or, or not anymore. And um, right. that's kind of where I cut my teeth as a 12 year old uh, starting out in the shop. And then by the time I was 14, I was like, I would say generally competent uh, as a bike mechanic. Mm-hmm. Generally not, not very like broadly, but yeah. you do kind of, the, the the basics like you know you know as far as like building a bike up or tuning a bike or doing you know mm-hmm. general bicycle shop tasks maybe some things were a little outside my scope but at that point was generally competent and so yeah at that point I started kind of they started letting me work on the fancy bikes you know took a while cool. getting a lot of the a lot of the shit bikes for the first few years and uh, rightfully yeah. so but um you know as with anyone who's sort of obsessed with like a sport that has a lot of equipment in it, you're always drawn to the fancy high end, you know, newest, sure. greatest stuff. And so, um, maybe it was because I sort of dangled that over my, you know, I was like the carrot, uh, for a while that I always like really wanted to work on the fancy bikes that kind of hooked me. And, uh, I just really found a lot of, cause with nice bikes, obviously like you can, you know, the, the more perfect you are, the more perfect the result is. And, uh, mm-hmm the better the experiences. And so that was kind of always the pursuit after that. And then once, once that was sort of within my competency, I, you know, then it was, how do you make these top of the line bikes work even better than they might? And so that was kind of the next, the next chapter. And so, um, fast forward, you know, probably I was in a bike shop basically from age 12 through college, uh, mm-hmm. whether part-time or full-time always as, you know, wherever I'd go, I would, first thing I would do when I moved to a new place was find what I believed to be the coolest bike shop or best bike shop, or, you know, or the one that aligned most with my interests, uh, and then try to work there at least part-time just to have, um, you know, to have like a shop and the resources of a bike shop close at hand sure. where, wherever I lived, because for me that was valuable and also, you know, access to 
spare parts and used stuff and some like the you know take off parts bins that are always in the back of a bike shop that you know yeah really it's invaluable to employee there all totally. that stuff was very valuable to me as like a you know real geeky kind of nerdy bike guy who wanted yeah. to always have you know projects going and restoring old weird bikes and you know i needed access to that stuff so i always was uh eager to get into a bike shop and you know generally had the skills to go in there and interview demonstrate that whether it's like through you know build a new bike and see how you did kind of thing or sometimes just on references from previous shops but always manage to get in there and um Mm -hmm. and take care of you know take care of that side of my kind of bike needs that way and uh make a little money on the side so through college i was kind of doing that but always thought you know eventually this is going to dry up and i'll have to get a real job and (laughs) <laughs> you know, graduate from college and move on. So I, I actually did do that. And uh, after college, I went to the University of North Carolina in mm-hmm. Chapel Hill. And after college, I moved to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, to work in like a government contracting job doing communication work. It was just super dull, yeah. uh, dry, boring, uninspiring. <laughs> How many other words? And uh, yeah. I subscribe this. Um, you get the point. And so, yeah. uh, meanwhile, I had found yet another bike shop in town. It was like, to this day, it was probably one of the nicest bike shops I've ever walked into, just in terms of like what was, you know, on the showroom floor and in the in the cabinets and shelves and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very impressed. And it was a bike shop in Arlington, Virginia, that um, was called Fresh Bikes. And it uh, had like one of the largest group rides in the country. And so I was exposed to that uh, first by going on the group ride, found the bike shop. It's like, holy crap, I've never seen a shop like this. Mm-hmm. Um, knew some people who knew some people at the shop and kind of got introduced and, uh, and yeah, so I started working there part-time like 10 or 12 hours a week while I had this other job. And, um, at one point right around the time that I was really ready to, well, you know, I was pretty over this job. I was mm-hmm. ready to quit or, or do something. Um, the guy at the bike shop left, the mechanic at the bike shop, full-time guy left, uh, right in the spring time, right as things got busy. And this was like a pretty high end shop that one of the top grossing shops, uh, in the country, I guess mm-hmm. I was told, uh, wow. and it, you know, received a lot of those bicycle retailer industry news, like top shop awards all the time, you know? Right. Um, and so they had, I guess enough money to do that. Some, uh, make an offer like this, but they basically just matched my salary for my other job to come oh, on time at this job. And I was like, well, no brainer, definitely going to do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, had, had made friends with the guys there. So it was, you know, much more appealing work mm-hmm. environment in general, doing something I liked and was competent at, which none of which I would say was true of the other job that I had. And, yeah. um, and so I, you know, I'd originally kind of been like, I don't really like living here. I'm going to leave. And then I stayed for another five and a half years or so. Oh, wow. Years maybe for that time. Um, and it was only at the end when, uh, I met my now wife, uh, who uh, was at the time also in North Carolina, moved up briefly with me to be in, I was actually living in Arlington, Virginia, outside of D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we moved together to Pennsylvania, back to her hometown for a year where I uh, I, I spent that year working and uh, opening a shop of with another guy in town, our own shop, uh, which, you know, we were only going to be in Pennsylvania for a year. We were actually, her parents were leaving for a year to live in Greece and they offered us to live in their house and knew we both kind of wanted to get out of DC. So we lived in their house knowing we had a one year timeline to figure out the next chapter. Yeah. And so I opened this bike shop. We thought maybe we'd stay in Lancaster. 
mm-hmm. uh, but kind of got an itch. Maybe it was when we spent like five or six months. It wasn't a true quarantine, but we basically were in our own house in the wintertime in Pennsylvania under snow and kind of realized maybe that's, that wasn't the life for us after all. Yeah. And, uh, started looking uh, at the map, where would there not be snow right now, and found California uh, yeah. popping out very um, very loudly in, in those winter months. And so mm-hmm. um, she found a program in Monterey. I had only ever been to California once before, and it was to the Sea Otter Classic in Monterey, and asked if I would ever consider moving to Monterey, and I was like, <laughs> yes, absolutely, that place is awesome. So, um, you know, she had a plan. I didn't really. I figured I'd find it a bike shop again and walk in the door and get a job, which that kind of is what happened, actually. But um, my real plan at the time, and had been a plan a couple of times throughout my life, was to try to get a job at Specialized. I actually applied to some jobs there uh-huh. uh, right, out, right out of college as well. Yeah. Uh, which, which I, ne- you know, never amounted to anything. I don't think I even got much beyond like one or two emails back before, you know, no one answered my, gotcha. <laughs> my call anymore. But um, yeah. being in California made it much more possible to go in for interviews and see uh, see people in person. And um, sure. And so I had made some connections, whether it was like sales reps or friends of friends who'd worked there, mm-hmm. uh, either at the time or previously, who kind of linked me up. Uh, with a few people who I should call or talk to, and it took a few months, but, um, you know, I started doing little temp work, like, uh, like demo, like bike demos for shops or, you know, regions where many dealers would come for new product demos. I would like be a random mechanic there setting bikes up, doing suspension, you know, pressure and tire pressure and, mm-hmm. you know, just whatever I could do. And it would be like, I'd have a week of work and then I'd spend three weeks, like not hearing from anybody, wondering if I'll ever work again, you know? It was kind of stressful because I didn't uh, have a huge like savings uh, in the bank that I was comfortable enough living on for a long time. And so after a few months, it got pretty tight and I was like kind of ready to give up and didn't know what was going to happen. And then out of the blue, um, this is where part two of your question is the harder part to answer. Yeah. Part two was, um, you know, I've been doing, they also have a bike shop in specialized headquarters, I, I might add, where. I did spend like six weeks early on um, while they were waiting for someone who they'd hired to work in there to actually move from Ohio to California to begin working in the shop. So I, through friends and connections and their recommendation, got to work in there part time, mm-hmm. which was very fortunate because in doing so, like people from Mike Senior, the you know president of the company on down, everybody came through there one point or another to have something done to their bike because it was there to service right. employee bikes as well as do other more, you know, formal business, you know, profitable business things like sure. set up bike for PR events and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I met people, some people I didn't even know who they were, you know, relatively speaking in the company. Like I just was there helping everybody without much understanding of the org chart, you know? Yeah. And so, um, anyway, fast forward, it's like February now. I started mm-hmm. doing that stuff in like October, I think, of 2014. Mm-hmm. So like February 2015, it had been a long winter. I was basically a month away from being totally broke uh, and kind of hopeless and in despair. And then I got a phone call from the guy who was in charge of global sports marketing at the time. His mm-hmm. name is Gavin Noble. He's uh, he's a good guy who um, I had actually met without realizing who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, once or twice in the shop and uh, said that he'd been asking around uh, looking to hire internally um, and had gotten a number of people who 
you spoke with internally at Specialized who recommended me, even though I wasn't um, technically an employee, but they knew I was looking to become one and um, right. had the skill set to do the job, which was um, to be a specialized racing mechanic mm-hmm. based out of Morgan Hill. So kind of liaising between the main office and the race program. And in this case, it was like the triathlon program and mountain bike program. Okay. And you know, all the product stuff comes out of Morgan Hill and is funneled globally to all the teams and riders. And so that was sort of my job. And I would occasionally go to some races if they needed me to do some like on the ground support, but only domestically, only in the United States. Yeah. And then like two weeks later, I got a schedule and I had like a full calendar of domestic races to go to like two a month. And mm-hmm. I was like, Oh wow, that's a lot more travel than I thought. Oh God. And then about a week later, turned out there was a conflict with the Enduro World Series uh, race and some cross-country World Cups. And um, they asked if I wanted to go to Europe to be at some World Cups. And maybe I should mention, too, that when I started racing when I was 11, I kept racing uh, uh, cross-country through uh, about age 26. So that was, like, my thing, cross-country. You know, it was my specific interest. And Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, that was, like, the dream offer and it wasn't really what I'd signed up for. Um, but I was like, I said yes without even talking to my wife or anybody, you know, it was like yeah. a three week trip. And, uh, I was like, no, for sure. I'm definitely going. Um, this was like late spring, 2015. I think it was May, uh, month of May was when that trip was planned for, but I'd already been working with, uh, you know, Kate among others at that time it was her, she was very young and was like kind of the, the kid sister of the team, Leah Davison was like the, the main woman on the team, uh, from the United States. Um, Todd Wells was on our team then Howard Groth was on our team then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was supporting those four primarily plus occasional, you know, sometimes like Christoph Salzer came over for a race in the United States and right. Simon Andreessen came over at the time as a young rider. Uh-huh. Uh, so we were helping out those guys too, but you know, it was getting really more comfortable with the Americans. We've been traveling around a lot for the whole spring. And I think uh, after that first World Cup trip, Leah in particular was vocal about um, how nice it had been to have a mechanic who had been kind of, A, who spoke you know English very well and could communicate right. effectively. That's kind of one part of it maybe, but the other was somebody who was familiar with their bikes and their setup and could just sort of be the same person doing the same thing at all the races and not having to kind of go back and forth between mechanics and explain all the differences that maybe you've made since they last saw you and right, kind right. of deal with all that. And it just took a lot of the pressure and stress off of, um, mm-hmm. you know, the American riders who were kind of doing that. Whereas the European riders on our team at the time did, you know, kind of had the same support at every race more or less. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a nice thing for the American riders and they liked it. And so they, you know, Lee, I think was probably the one who led the charge initially who asked if I could be, there for all of her, you know, for all of the races. Mm-hmm. And there's a few, there's a few races that year where some of the travel and accommodations had already been made for, you know, had already been made that I couldn't take over basically, or at least not without, you know, the team paying double, which they weren't going to do. So, right. um, I went to like, I think five world cups of the full season that year, not the full, full season. I missed one or two of them. Um, you know, plus the full domestic thing and, you know, a couple other things, plus some triathlon stuff, which I also did at Specialized. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but then the following year, so for beginning 2016 onward, I was then, you know, full time, full time doing that job now. So mm-hmm. the job that I originally signed up for at Specialized was sort of 
almost falling by the wayside. And eventually we hired another person to kind of pick up that end of it mm-hmm. so that I could, you know, be away as much as I was without stuff, you know, not happening back home. Right. And, you know, over the years then we had quite a bit of success on the, on the team, you know, Leo herself took a second place at world championships in 2016. And, you know, the riders and the team in general were doing very well. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Kate obviously was coming up, uh, during those years as well. And, um, you know, that side of the story got very interesting, uh, a lot quicker than we thought, but she and I live rather close to each other. She's mm-hmm. only like an hour and a half or so away from me in Palo Alto. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's where she was in school and stamp at Stanford during that time. And so, you know, we could meet and, uh, and would often meet just for sometimes, you know, just to do, to ride not without any, business to attend to sure um sometimes there was business to attend to but for the most part it was just like getting together because mm-hmm. we liked hanging out and um sure but during those times also i could kind of like make observations about her bike and her setup and mm-hmm. we talked about that stuff and i think um a lot of a lot of the you know the relationship that we have now is based on those those early years when maybe she was getting less uh attention than i don't know maybe not been I don't know if it was then she deserved or then that she was just receiving based on kind of her, the hierarchy of the team. And she was a U23 and, uh, you know, we had some elite riders who were very uh, accomplished and they were sort of regarded as, you know, the priority riders. And so mm-hmm. she and a couple of other ones maybe didn't get the same level of attention. And I always thought she had a lot of potential and was like super appealing and very marketable also for the, for the brand. And, Sure. Um, I, I just saw a lot in Kate, I guess, and so I enjoyed spending the time trying to kind of hone her setup mm-hmm. in and ask her questions that maybe she never thought of about her setup, and we could kind of work together to kind of tweak her bikes a little more than they had been to really hone it in. And I think that in that process, she kind of started trusting me with her stuff. And in general, um, I think it's nice for the riders to not have to be burdened with the thought of their own bike setup if, or anything really for that matter. Uh, anything they don't totally. need to think about or focus on, if they can pass that off, I think it, you know, it, that leads to potentially better results um, just straight away because they can focus on what their job is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some riders are very hands-on and very equipment savvy and really want to, you know, look at every bolt on their bike. Other riders are, they just are athletes and they want to be an athlete and they don't necessarily I don't want to say they don't know about their equipment as much, but they don't like, that's not a source of like deep fascination for them. Yeah. You know, so sure. It's just the difference of maybe how you grew up and what your relationship with your bike was early. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for Kate, she'd rather have a perfect bike kind of without having to necessarily do like the hands-on stuff. And so mm-hmm. I think she appreciates having someone who can talk to her, basically just take feedback. It doesn't have to be technical. It can just be general sensations that she had. Um, and I'm pretty good at interpreting those maybe because I've ridden a lot myself and done, mm-hmm. you know, I haven't raced at the level that she has or, or succeeded at the level that she has by not even close. But, um, you know, I know, I know how a race, a race bike should be. I know what things yeah. you can do to a bike that make it, um, do one thing or another thing. Well, you know, yeah. whether it's to be durable and last for, you know, marathon distance race, what, what changes should we make to get through that race clean or, Mm-hmm. You know, how do we how do we shave every last gram out of this bike? You know, whatever, whatever it is, she just says, "Yeah, go for it." And um, 
yeah, I trust you, or if it comes back that she experienced something about it she didn't like, she's also very sensitive to those things and communicates it very well. Oh, that's um, cool. And kind of leaves it to me to interpret her feedback and make the changes that I believe uh, is what she's describing. And, you know, I think we've gotten that right a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that's sort of like the foundation of where our success and uh, the relationship that people are now, you know, pretty aware of the two of us, um, where that all began. And, you know, I think that's also probably the most important, most important thing with me leaving and going to Scott with Kate was, you know, that, that relationship and that trust was sort of the, the thing that she was uncertain of as she was going to leave and join a totally new program. You know, mm -hmm. I think that having the one person that she knows that she can say it the way that she says it, you know, give the feedback that she's comfortable and capable of giving and know that that's going to translate into a bike that she feels comfortable on when it's time to go. And, um, and she knows that I've had quite a bit of experience working on bikes besides just specialized bikes. And yeah. uh, I think trusted that, you know, switching to something new would be perhaps less daunting for me than it was for her. For um, sure. She grew up, her first bike was a specialized and uh, every bike until she switched in 2019 mm -hmm. uh, had, had been a specialized. So I think there was some, maybe just fear of the unknown there for her because she had never ridden anything else and had always been told by, you know, the team and, the brand that these are the best bikes and that's, that's the end and that's all. And that there can be no better bike. So, uh, you know, I, I was quick to reassure her that in fact, there's many bikes that are, you know, capable of being one on and, and it just comes down to the setup. And, um, mm -hmm. so I was very, I was very happy, obviously, like we'd already kind of gotten off on our, um, on our like fun escapades together at specialized. And so to be able to continue, you know, I'd already invested a lot of time and like personal interest and like emotion into already seeing Kate develop much quicker than we thought, uh, into the rider that she is. But, um, you know, I was very happy to not have to kind of watch from afar as she kind of went off and continued, you know, and to be able to stick by that and continue together was, uh, particularly, um, I thought a gracious, uh, gesture on her part to want to continue and also, it shouldn't be uh, forgotten that, you know, teams don't have to just say yes to a rider who says, especially if that, I mean, you know, she was a world champion, but she was quite a young rider and mm -hmm. joining a new team and to say, yeah, I want to bring somebody else too. Like that's not a given. Right. Um, and, it, and it's very kind of unusual in cross country. I'd say in like in motors, motocross, motocross or like other motorsports, it's kind of common in downhill. It's not uncommon for riders to have, their mechanic who follows them team to team, you know, you know, like mm -hmm. guys like Aaron Gwynn or Troy Brosnan or yep. Blake Rooney have had the same mechanics, no matter what bikes they're riding. And, um, that's kind of accepted, but I can't really think of too many examples in cross country where such a, a thing has kind of happened before, sure. um, where a relationship like that has sort of transcended the team structures and, uh, has become more of like a, a rider's personal mechanic type thing, regardless mm -hmm. of team. So, um, one thing I will say for Frischie, who's our team manager, Thomas Frischenecht, one of the legends of cross-country mountain biking himself, uh, and somebody who I grew up you know, during his heyday and was like always, he was kind of an idol in, in the sport for me. So um, also interesting to get to meet all these people now. That's just a side note, just for me to be sort of working among the same names that I was like reading about in magazines when I was 12. It's like pretty odd. Uh, but oh, absolutely, man. I kind of got over that, but it's exciting. It's like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Um, but Frischie is like a super 
great guy, a gracious guy, a humble guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he runs the number one mountain bike team in the world. Uh, and he does it like a family. And I think he values relationships like that and understands what their value is to a rider uh, and to a team. And I think, you know, he was in, and well before there was ever even talk of Kate leaving and joining Scott, he had been very complimentary of her and, and me and us together and how we operate. Um, would come up and tell me things about how he really appreciated the little touches I would put on her bike. And, and just because you could look at the bike and tell that somebody cared about Kate because of how the bike was set up, you know, mm-hmm. like he as a rider could see that and knew that. And, you know, that's what I do too. That's why I do what I do to her bikes, but I do it, you know, for her and for me, I don't necessarily expect everybody to notice or look that closely, but he did. And yeah. with no, with no, you know, agenda or no reason that he had to, even if he felt that way, he, he took the time to come up to me. He didn't know me well at the time, other than that I was a mechanic for specialized and you mm-hmm. know, he'd seen me around at the races, but he could, he came up and said, I'll never forget it. It was at worlds in Australia in 2017. And he, he said like, you know, I just wanted to say, uh, we were at the Oakley house, just happened to be there at the same time, you know, coincidentally, mm-hmm. he was like, Hey, I was, I was taking a look at Kate's bike yesterday. And, you know, I just looked at it and there's so much detail built into that thing. And, um, I just really cool to see a mechanic it takes to kind of care of the rider. Cause you know, she can just look at that bike and know that it's been <laughs> gone through top to bottom. And uh, there's a lot of special stuff built in and that is so good for the riders in these, in these big races to have that confidence. And, yeah, I was like, wow, what a, what a nice thing to say. Uh, that's like so shocking, especially from this guy, you know, that's yeah. amazing. One of the highlight, one of the highlights of my career at that point and still, and, uh, and then the following spring, you know, that was, so that was, uh, I guess the following spring, uh, what was that world? That was maybe it was actually that same spring. He had also had Sea Otter Classic. That was the year he was following Jenny Rizfeds, who was his rider at the time, had won the gold medal in Rio. Mm-hmm. at the Olympics in 2016 and Kate came out at Sea Otter Classic in April. Uh, Jenny was there and, uh, and Kate beat her, um, which was definitely Kate's biggest win at the time. Yeah. And, um, the first guy I saw at the finish line was Frishy there, shake my hand and tell me congratulations. And like, what a wow. important and special, special day this will be that we will remember, you know, later as a really important day like he he'd already thought about the whole scope of it you know like it's like Mm -hmm. the scope of this win in the terms of kate's career like he was already there with it and uh you know and i just really always thought that was um, a respectable way of kind of conducting yourself and uh that's huge you know and like because he's not just some random guy either you know he's like some random tomato he's like the, the dude and so um, yep. That was always really like meaningful and he was always really approachable and friendly and had a positive attitude. And, um, now that I'm on his team, uh, and I'm, I'm around him all the time, you know, that's kind of how he is with, ev- with everyone basically. And so he has like kind of a, an aura or like a reputation for being kind of the, the people's champion, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and like cool. and the riders champion and he, he treats yeah. his riders, uh, you know, very, very well, and everybody's very taken care of and, and wants to do their job, whether it's the rider's job or the mechanic's job, and we have some of the best mechanics. Um, Yannick and Kurt, my my other two mechanics that I work with, uh, are two incredible guys as well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we saw Lars win a World Cup this year. Obviously, Nino uh, 
is unbelievable. And, you know, Lars is taken care of by Kurt. Nino is taken care of by Yannick. And so mm-hmm. we have guys uh, behind the scenes who are some of the best in d- delivering some of the best, you know, theoretically results. Of course, we have some of the best talent in the world on the bikes riding them too. So, yeah. you know, Rishi, uh, the team is fairly small and like, in terms of the size and scope of our setup compared to some of the other big teams, like, um, you know, tracker specialized, like our footprint out of race is not quite so big, but instead Frishy invests in the, um, in the atmosphere, you know, and mm-hmm. making sure that we have a, that he has the talent, but not that it's just a team of, uh, individuals, but that everybody gets along. Mm-hmm. Um, and he creates an environment where that's, that's the, the way that it is. And everybody wants to do more, you know, for each yeah. other and, um, it's just built into his program and it's a feeling that we never had before. Um, oh, that sounds fantastic. And that we miss a lot now too, you know, so it's like now we're sort of all kind of isolated around them everywhere in yeah. the world that we, we miss live. not and on family time. So, totally. Yeah. So there's a lot of, a lot of messaging back and forth among the team and like yeah. meme sharing and just general stuff to kind of keep the vibe going. But, uh, you know, we spent the whole winter looking forward to getting back together. And so now you know, we're looking at another period at the same time mm-hmm. for four or five months of continued like this. So it's, it's been difficult. Um, our team spirit is like quite good. And so I'm not worried about that, but it's just like difficult because we want to be doing something that we're not allowed to do now. And, uh, yeah. So that's like a thing, but it, it's nice to have a team you want to get back together with every time. And oh, absolutely. Yeah. And people you want to be around when you're doing, you know, long hours and long days, long, weeks and months on the road it's nice to be with people that you enjoy being with because sure. you know at the, end, at the end of the day that'll make or break the whole experience mm-hmm. so you mentioned some things that are that he had pointed out um you know some like particular things that you had done to kate's bike what are some of those things um that's going on with her new bike like what are the, well, what are some of the kind of like yeah. custom things that you've put together on it well so there's one one particular feature that is widely kind of uh, featured in, in some media stuff. I've done a few articles about her little blip button on her grip that's for her dropper post, and that was yeah. a that was a, a fun a fun project. You know, mm-hmm. as bikes have become more and more electronic, there's not a lot of fiddling left to do yeah. uh, as a mechanic. Um, yeah. Not so much creativity available. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's nice when those opportunities still present themselves. And um, you know, we switch from specialized, which those bikes have the brain uh, suspension systems front and rear, mm-hmm. which are not a true lockout, um, but kind of do almost all the way, you know, lock the bike out and then mm-hmm. unlock just automatically. So if you've ever ridden a Specialized, it's a, a cool technology that um, mm-hmm. I always liked and I find very impressive in the engineering of that technology involved. For um, sure. And it works well, but... You can never lock the bike out, nor is the bike ever fully active either, because you're always overcoming that uh, that platform, the brain system, okay. before the suspension really mm-hmm. comes alive. So, you know, for Kate, who's never ridden anything but a Specialized, and for myself, who uh, hadn't ridden a, a special, or anything but a Specialized in probably 10 years, you know, mm-hmm. at least not ridden it consistently. Um, right. When we switched to Scott, they were, the thing that was kind of the most um, foreign to both of us was having lockout levers again and Mm -hmm. uh, for her for the first time ever um and you know 
the good thing is that you can now have a bike that's totally locked out or you can have a bike that's totally active and you also have a middle setting where it's kind of a high damped travel reduced setting that's good for like pedaling over rough you know rough dirt roads where you're seated and climbing and it's a little bit bumpy so you don't want yeah. it fully washed out so we have all these new kind of ways to have the bike um, behave and you can control that yourself so it turns out once we got used to it that having a real brain was actually better than having them in the suspension um and she had never ridden a bike that had that the suspension worked so well on because it didn't have a brain to overcome and so it was totally active and um not to mention we get some you know favorable tuning help from rock shocks who are building suspension parts for kate and her body mm-hmm. weight specifically so oh, cool. um so that's nice the only problem was um you know we also were just getting on the axis uh, electronics ram group for the first time and uh it has you know like most dropper posts which kate loves by the way yeah um, and almost never rides without nice. uh, the dropper post lever was like a thumb actuated button basically like a paddle button that you know mounts where a normal dropper lever would go mm-hmm. um but that's also where the suspension lockout switches were located and um so they made an option to put those suspension lockouts like above the grip where you kind of like throw your thumb like an old thumb shifter. Yep. Uh, but her hands are like super small as is the rest of her. And um, yeah. she couldn't really push the lever far enough to full lockout without actually like removing her hand from the grip and doing it like, <laughs> like with her bare, like her whole hand. And okay. So obviously that wasn't going to work. Um, and we we're kind of imagining some situations and uh, I was, you know, Yannick and I were, just imagining um, things in general with the group because we found out from SRAM, uh, this is super early, we're actually there for their product launch for Access. They did it in Arizona. And our, our team was there to mm-hmm. um, kind of help promote it. And uh, and that was when I was first building Kate's race bikes for the season. And um, they told us that like the road, the road ETAP parts could be paired with the mountain bike parts. And that got us thinking like we could use the, the blip buttons for their time trial shifter uh, mm-hmm. or, or triathlon shifter where they're just like a rubber button that you can kind of place anywhere on the grip or on the, you know, mm-hmm. on your TT extensions or whatever the case may be. Um, you can basically put them wherever you want to is the point. And they have a wire that runs into a little sending unit, which sends the, you know, the Bluetooth signal, which is the wireless part of the access group. And that can control whatever you want it to, it turns out. So uh, we, you know, sort of just rigged one up to see if it would work while we were there with the blip button uh, and to see if it would actually operate the seat post. And uh, you have to use the app, uh, the SRAM app, which you can download, you know, for free. It's just part of it. But you have to download the app and you can go in the app and tell, you know, it'll recognize all the components that you have. You tell the blip box uh, via the app that you want, you know, this button, which is plugged into this port in the blip box to do this function, which was in this case, the seat post. Mm-hmm. And so what that allowed for us to do was remove the axis paddle shifter, uh, you know, thing that operated the drop post, remove that all together. Um, it took a few, a little bit of trial and error to kind of get the button placement just where we wanted it. We started out with it like behind the grip as like a thumb actuated thing because it's like in the grip. It was kind of an awkward thing to try to get your thumb up there. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to be able to activate the suspension lockouts and the dropper post kind of more or less at the same time, because oftentimes you want to, you know, unlock the suspension and drop the seat post at the same time before you hit a technical sure. section or, you know, maybe the other way around. So um, we made it so her index finger 
was the the button controller, and then the thumb was still just the suspension lockout switches. And uh, with a few trial and error of like where exactly in the grip we want to put it, and where it wasn't interfering with normal riding, and where she could still hit the brakes, and also the button not be, you know, too jammed up. That that one took you know six weeks of trying it out. Eventually, we I've started cutting the left grip down 13 millimeters. I know exactly where <laughs> from that end of the grip to measure to the center of where the hole is going to be that I cut to put her button in. And um, mm-hmm. we've done a lot to kind of clean up the aesthetics of it as well. But it's been a flawless system. Sweet. And it really cleans up the handlebar quite a bit. And, um, you know, it's 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 gotten a lot of attention because it's sort of novel and not mm-hmm. many people have done it. Um, sure. Although <laughs> I think a lot of people have done it since they've started seeing it. And I right. have a lot of questions about it and it's been in some magazines and uh um you know yannick has also done some pretty impressive ones where he's uh rewired um the a blip button just the internals into the shifter paddle on the right side so like you have the axis shifter where you have the up and the down push which is normal and then dead center in the paddle he's put this other button uh, mm-hmm. which is the dropper post and so we've been experimenting with that i'm not sure that's the going to be the the answer for anyone but we've kind of just once we realized there was sort of unlimited creativity in that, you know, if you go down that road, you suddenly have a lot of new ideas of just how you could control your bike. And, um, obviously with like a mechanical system, a cable and the housing, you're sort of limited by, you know, the nature of how they function, right. um, where you can be creative in that way. And with the electronic stuff with no wires at all, um, you kind of have a whole new thing to think about in terms of how you can be creative to, make the bike more intuitive and efficient for the riders to use. And there've been studies with Nino about how often he's switching between, um, suspension modes. And I'd be very curious now that there's a SRAM app, um, that tracks it, like how often you're using the dropper post and like how many times per ride it went up and down. And it tells you as well as things about like shifting, um, details and various things. So, um, once you start to see those numbers and imagine the race scenario, um, as often as they're using those controls, anything you can do um, to make it faster or smoother or make it so that they can use the suspension controls more mm-hmm. to get the bike to be even more perfect more of the time, mm-hmm. you know, as the course changes throughout the lap, it translates to small, you know, a microsecond here or a fraction of one there. Yep. Um, extrapolated over a lap, maybe it's a few seconds and extrapolated over a race, maybe it's 20 or 30, you know, or, or 20 or 30 seconds they could you know, extend, expend less effort than they would, you know, mm-hmm. they could save some energy for 20 or 30 seconds worth of riding or who knows, yeah. but it's to their advantage. And so I think, um, you know, Nino's appreciative and, and Kate's been appreciative for a long time, uh, of having a mechanic. The mechanic is not just sort of a binary figure, like cleaning, washing, setting the bike up to right. specs that the manufacturer provides and giving you a perfectly functional bike. And that's where it ends. But instead, you know, in our free time researching and brainstorming and chit-chatting and imagining uh, scenarios where, you know, we could take what we have, modify it, and make it better for them than uh, totally. than, than otherwise would be. And that's maybe an advantage they have over their competitors, too, which um, perhaps yeah, that's huge. why they like to keep us around. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, sure, it's going so far we have we have reason to believe it's, it's effective and helpful. So yeah, um, we're going to stick with the program for now. Nice. What is your, uh, how fully are you kind of tearing down and rebuilding her bike between races? Like say if you have, 
you know, a race back to back on two different weekends. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, if it, in that, in that context, um, I do, I would say like half, halfway down. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily take the bike apart and Yannick and I are, um, like-minded in this. I've worked with other mechanics in the past who maybe felt like doing more was doing more. I think doing more mm-hmm. is doing too much. And Yannick actually put it well when he described it as, as a bicycle is like a wound or like a scab. Mm-hmm. The more you do to it, the more you mess with it. Sometimes it makes it worse. Um, yeah. And that can, that can be true. You know, I think you have to be a good mechanic to know when something is okay and doesn't need to be taken apart just because, you know, sure. yeah. um, you need to be real confident that it doesn't because if that's the reason that, you know, something went wrong, then, uh, you know, suddenly it was a really bad idea to leave it alone. But, mm-hmm. um, I think in both of our cases, we're familiar and, um, understand the bikes well enough that, um, you know, things like suspension bearing pivots, if the race was dry, I'm not going to pop those out and like put new ones in. Mm-hmm. You know, to, even in the same month, not, sure. you know, definitely not week after week. If it was a wet race, probably I will. But yeah. um, even if they're probably feeling okay, the bike feels okay, doesn't sound bad, doesn't creak, I might still just because I know what happens to bikes and bearings when they've been pressure washed and ridden through mud, you know, totally. for four days in a weekend for a race. And then you show up next week. Yeah, the other bearings will probably be a little bit corroded, uh, probably pretty rough, and they probably need to go. And so... It's just kind of interpreting like what the bike went through previously. Mm -hmm. Um, there's definitely like a general protocol I follow. Um, when I'm, you know, quote unquote cleaning the bike, it's, it's a lot more than that. And it's, uh, uh, usually there's at least suspension, um, seal work, if not a full rebuild of the fork. Usually, I mean, a a two weekend race that might, might not, might not happen. But if I'm, you know, I have a race in April in a race in the beginning of May, mm-hmm. uh, there will be at least one suspension, uh, rebuild in that time. And it, you know, it might be right before the race in May, or it might be because there was bad conditions at some point in sure. April. Um, but you know, if it was really dry and the bike was good and the suspension was working well and it had been rebuilt recently, I probably wouldn't tear it apart just because, uh, for the following race the next weekend. So it's a little bit, um, circumstance dependent on exactly how deep I'll go. But I also like to clean the bikes really thoroughly. And in those moments, that's when I tend to discover very small issues, um, if they exist. And so, you know, at some point in the race week, I'm going to pull, you know, the derailleur part down to the pulleys and clean out the pulley wheel bearings and oil them so that they're spinning at, you know, zero friction and, uh, do the same to the bottom bracket bearings and, when I'm prepping the suspension bearings, I like to do that too. So even there, there's no friction or, you know, as little as possible. Yeah. And, uh, I like to modify certain things on the bikes that I don't necessarily recommend to the day to day bicycle user because it may compromise its long term, like weather resistance. But mm-hmm. I like to modify, for example, the seals on the bottom bracket bearings so that they spin with even less drag from seal contact and mm-hmm. use different loops in there that make them spin incredibly smoothly, but it doesn't last for more than, you know, a weekend of riding probably before it needs right. to be done again. And, um, so there's little ways that, you know, basically every part we use is for the most part, I would say every part we use is made for 
the consumer market. You know, they're mm-hmm. not just producing. It's not like an F one team where you're producing, you know, prototype parts for this one car and you know spending a million dollars on it and it doesn't ever see production or no one ever necessarily benefits from that. We're taking stuff that's either already in the hands of consumers or is going to be, you know, it's a product that's coming. And, um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, inherently those products are a little bit overbuilt or a little bit, uh, you know, they're made to last. They're made to be durable, especially mountain bike parts because people do ride them in, you know, nasty weather and they do spray them with a hose. So there have to be some, um, I guess they don't have to be, but there often are, uh, you know, some built in, um, elements into in particular bearing seals and fork seals and suspension stuff that they try to make it so that it lasts a while without requiring service because I think people get frustrated when their bikes require constant service and um, sure. since my job is to constantly be servicing a bike I can kind of cheat some of those systems mm-hmm. to get better performance out of the product even if it would theoretically compromise their long term durability that's not a factor for us and so yeah. you know I have the freedom to and also the depth of parts in my parts been, um, you know, just a luxury that we have on our team, uh, mm-hmm. that we can do that stuff. And if it does wear out quick, um, that's okay too, as long as it performed at its best, you know, the best of its capability or even beyond yeah. what it's, you know, normally capable of. And so those, those are the things that excite me about doing the job. And mm-hmm. when you get to work with a rider who is at her, they were, you know, in Yannick's case too, at the peak of, you know, Nino's obviously like the best that ever did it. And, Mm-hmm. When you have riders like Kate or Nino who are who show up every every race with the potential to win, um, that's when little things really actually matter. You know, I can do the same stuff to my bike, and yeah, sure, it feels nice when my bottom bracket bearings are spinning perfectly, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it wouldn't make or break the outcome of my bike ride, but for Kate and Nino, like those little things can actually make mm-hmm. the difference. You know, even if it's only good for a few seconds, sometimes races are. You know, yeah, they're one on that. One by only right. seconds, or they're, they're they're one in a sprint, and the rider who didn't have to work as hard throughout the race because the bike was more efficient suddenly has a little bit more in the tank at the end. You know, and sure. so that's like a bit of theoretical uh, mechanic, uh, you know, mechanic theory kind of where you don't sure. have a way to quantify exactly how important what you did was, but you are pretty sure it made a difference. You know, and mm-hmm. so. Um, I think, you know, I think if you talk to most mechanics, a lot of what we do is we, we think it makes a difference, but there's not a way of quantifying it. And there thankfully are more and more ways to quantify some of the things, um, that we're doing. Um, but a lot of it is almost superstitious, you know, or sure. at least, at least it works last time some, some voodoo, voodoo <laughs> magic stuff where we, yeah. we're pretty sure like i'm pretty sure it's faster now so nice uh, but yeah as long as it's not slower then i think we've done our our job well and if it is fast then we've done our job very well so nice all right that's what we're shooting for sweet so how many bikes are you typically bringing with you like say when you go to a race in Europe and you're going to be in Europe for a while. Like how many bikes are you bringing for Kate? And are you bringing one for yourself as well? Um, yeah, so we, uh, we have the fortune of having a lot of, a lot of bikes. Uh It's a, it's a gift and a curse. Um, because it's a lot to keep track of. We have like duplicate bikes, you know, Mm -hmm. first of all, well, so with specialized and with Scott now, you know, the, the rate, 
Scott is actually a privately owned team that Frisch owns, but Scott is very obviously tied up in it um, um, from a marketing side, and they're very interested in uh, aligning their marketing efforts with the team and vice versa. And so with Kate and with Nino, um, you know, last year you saw at one point in the year, both of them were racing on some silver custom or like limited edition bikes. Yeah, those are sweet. For, for Worlds, they got the kind of candy apple red mm-hmm. silver bikes. Um, before that, they had some bikes. Kate's was like sort of a pinkish red color. And Nino's was neon yellow that like faded to rainbow sparkles, you know? Yeah. And these are all future colorways that like would be offered later. And so the team races them first. Mm-hmm. They gained both the interest from people who just see them during racing, but then also they've gathered photos and videos and various marketing type assets that they can then use to market those products later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of like the business side of all of this. And then um, because of that, you know, the good news is we only race the same bike for like two months, okay. maybe. Um, and oftentimes too, like at the beginning of the season, for example, we'll have one of the same bikes, uh, both hardtail and full suspension. So both this, Scott scale and the spark, uh, same color, same build, one of each in U S and one of each. And then the same again in Switzerland. So, mm-hmm. um, that's where our team headquarters is based, uh, is in Switzerland. And so gotcha. when we fly over, you know, usually we only bring like maybe one bike, usually like a spark. That's like a backup bike. Mm-hmm. But maybe by the end of the season, um, we might not even fly with any bikes to Europe because we'll have, you know, I'll go over there. I'll be building up one of these new ones, you know, whether whatever new you know color they want to showcase. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go up, you know, I'll go there. We always fly over early because we come from the U.S. and there's always a bit of a jet lag adjustment um, sure. that needs to be accounted for. So usually I'll spend a little time preparing for the race and all the you know supplies, and materials with Yannick, and then maybe also. In the days leading up to a race, you know, leaving for a race, I'll also assemble a new bike, so or two. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll fly over there with nothing. I'll build up a bike. We'll pack everything up, and then we'll drive from Switzerland to, you know, wherever the actual race is. It could be Italy, it could be Germany, it could be the Czech Republic. But we always start yeah. in Switzerland, and so it's nice to be able to not actually have to take bikes apart too much and travel around and risk damaging them and sure. you know so sure. forth so um in an ideal situation the answer would be zero sometimes it's one or two kind mm-hmm. of depends on the season and in some circumstances but um sure with many bikes that she uses in a season you know at this point we have every like to the millimeter every exact detail of where mm-hmm. every control on the handlebar is located and exactly what angle the saddle uh tilt is plus you know every other normal dimension that you would take into account yeah um, all the way down to like pedal release spring tension settings and all this stuff so basically i can build a bike without her even being there mm-hmm. uh and you know blindfold her and put her on one or the other and she might not be able to tell the difference and that's cool. that's my goal you know there's always yeah. a little bit of that touch at the at the fingers that um maybe it takes her to you know say no, this, this brake cover is just a little bit too I mean, just like lower that a bit or move it in or out a millimeter or two. But beyond that, it's like, you know, pretty damn close every time. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it, at first there was some reluctance or hesitation about, uh, you know, I wish I could just bring my, my bike that I've been riding these last 
weeks, I don't have to fly over and get on a totally new bike. But I think now she's seeing that it can, you know, that it can be, it can be done, um, this yeah. way. And, uh, it's so, so sometimes we might bring just in case like the same seat post and seat, uh, assembly from a bike at home and bring it across just so there's no, you know, maybe for the first day of training, just ride that setup So there's no fiddling required. And then, you know, we either use that for the race or maybe take all the measurements again and recreate it on a new seat post, but, um, much easier to travel with a seat in a seat post than a whole bike. And so for sure. Uh, yeah. So, you know, once we're there for each rider, I would say we probably have three bikes per race, which would be like at least two, if not three, like the hard gel full suspension bike and then a backup bike. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of, you know, the crash or some sort of damage that were to happen, there's always a, a backup, you know, waiting. Yeah. So we have probably like 10 wheel sets, uh, you know, eight, eight complete component groups and about a million tires. And then like a couple, like one spare frame for each rider's size, uh, plus a backup complete bike and then a hardtail and a full suspension race bike. So that's like, you know, 12 bikes basically probably for the riders. And then there would be, you know, Frishy's bike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yannick and Kurt may or may not bring a bike and I may or may not bring a bike kind of depending, but we might have within our whole entourage of staff and riders, you know, 15 or 20 bikes at a race. And, nice. uh, and that's a lot for, you know, for four riders, but I'm kind of, and I, you know, Yannick and I are very aligned in our approach to this and mm-hmm. I appreciate working with somebody like that, but we both just like to over prepare to the point that, you know, there's no risk of, emergencies occurring like there is always something available for every circumstance that could occur you know we have the solution yeah. already prepared and uh yeah. that's you know that helps us sleep at night that gives the riders a great deal of confidence in the team and who's there supporting them and uh you know when you kind of don't feel like anything could go wrong it, it goes a long way for your mental your mental state so i think the even just having people doing a good job of preparing things is actually probably to the rider's advantage, you know, in a certain small way, just psychologically, just knowing that this team has thought of everything and it's got your back. And so, yeah, as a rider, you just show up and if you can do your job, then odds are good that you're going to have a successful successful weekend. Totally. Yeah. And it sounds like you've got a lot of the the kind of the stress management dialed. What what would you say is a, a stressful part of the job? If there is one. Um, you know, there's always like, little surprises that mm-hmm. pop up as you're traveling around like it's, it's kind of inevitable and um you never know it could be a like a vehicle problem like one of the team vehicles this may not be stressful for kate but it's stressful for me you know yeah. something happens and then like you're at a race and you need to like sort that out too on top of the other stuff you're doing you know like somehow figure out how to like get this car fixed while we're like stuck on the side of the road in andorra like where do mm-hmm. you go um but you know i I think the only the only stress really is just sort of the anxiety uh, of anticipating what we're there to do because we get there on Wednesday, maybe sometimes even earlier Tuesday, mm-hmm. perhaps before a weekend of racing. It's a lot of time to sit around and like think about it, you know. And um, especially, I think when Kate's feeling really good, uh, that's actually kind of a difficult time to be kind of waiting. Because, mm-hmm. you know, during a race week, she doesn't 
have that much to fill her days with. She'll ride a couple hours, do some time on the course or, you know, a little spin on the road, but she's not riding multiple hours a day in the gym. And right. So she's um, thinking about it a lot, you know? Yep. And so I think when she's feeling really confident and excited to race, but like, isn't racing, then she starts, that can, that can be where like anxiety is creeped in. It's like, well, I hope I'm as good as I feel like I'm going to be. I hope I get it right. Cause I feel really strong and I hope I don't mess up or have a problem. Cause I'm feeling really fit. And you know, I think I'm, I think I'm good this weekend. But the more days you have to sit and think about that, the more time in the day that you have to think about that, sometimes you can kind of psych yourself out. So uh, I like to try to bring some levity to the situation when I can and try to keep the humor and the feeling light and uh, joke around with her a bit, just kind of get her out of her head. And, um, you know, she likes to do that, too. She's a very funny and, like, playful type personality and and likes to joke around and have a fun time. And I think that transcends uh, a lot of what people see of us. Yeah, together yeah, yeah, um, absolutely but you know you can't really be fun or serious unless you're pretty confident you got the other shit figured out before right. you know and so i think what people see is true and accurate but what they may not realize is that like we've already done the stressful hard anxiety producing stuff or, or spent a lot of time uh behind the scenes when people weren't looking figuring those things out and so you know Plus, we've been doing this together with each other for the last six years. So we, we really mm-hmm. know, you know, short of those occasional moments of surprise, like we know what to expect when we show up at these places. We know what bike we rode at, what what settings we had last time we were at these same places. And so um, we spend a lot of time eliminating the stress or, or, or thinking about things and anticipating things ahead of time so that we don't have to face the stress during the time when it's the pressure is actually on which is at the race and then we can kind of almost relax it's almost um almost i would say it's almost relaxing to be at the race you know rather than to be somewhere else thinking about racing because once you're there you know exactly what your job is and how to do it and uh totally you follow the routine and then once that's over you can just enjoy yourself yeah Nice. Yeah, I've heard similar things from a few different like team managers that once you're at the race, everything your job's kind of done, so mm-hmm. it's kind of time to relax. Yeah. yeah. So um, I got a couple different kind of wrap up questions, and then maybe I'll shoot you a couple different questions, just brief stuff via email. Right. Um, so one big one uh, that I have a hunch you're going to have a good answer for is what did it feel like to see the athlete you work with take the world championship title and then the world cup overall? Like, what is that experience like? Well, Kate and I both sort of talk about like how we, you know what imposter syndrome is where it's like, it's hard to believe that like you're the person doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Like like how how am I that guy that's the one or how am I this writer who, I'm just this random like idiot person. How did I manage to do this? You know? <laughs> um, yeah. Like that's how I go about my day every single day. And, yeah. uh, and I think, you know, uh, I don't want, if Kate's listening, I don't want her, her reading. I don't want her to hear uh, that I said idiot. That's not what I meant. But like, you know, how does a dumb old person like me and doing this now? Yeah. So that's kind of how it was. And it still is. And, you know, I, I knew because I've seen how hard Kate works and like, you know, people get a glimpse of that because they, you know, if you follow her on social media, you get to see some of the crazy gym stuff that she does, but yeah. that's like the tip of the iceberg, you know, like that's like at the end of the workout, she does the fun kind of creative, entertaining balance 
exercises and sure, stuff. Sure. But like hard work, I've been I've been there for a lot and heard about it and tried to do some and failed miserably. And, <laughs> it uh, looks difficult. Know, I, so like I I've seen what goes into it. So I, I I had a lot of confidence that at some point Kate would do something special yeah. in the sport of mountain biking, and I knew that because of her personality and the way that she presents the sport of mountain biking to the public, uh, mm-hmm. it's like super appealing in a way that just pure competition isn't like it. She, she does a great job of showcasing like the fun and meaningful side of bike riding in the midst of being the number one ranked rider in the world. Um, but like still, still manages to convey a fun and life attitude yeah. and approach to cycling, which is partially accurate. I mean, she definitely is, incredibly serious at the time when she has to be and no one no one could win what she's won and especially as early as she's done it if they weren't but um, yeah. she's an incredibly hard worker so like i did i did think one day we would be celebrating uh, a big win together i didn't think it was going to be like every year immediately so um, <laughs> and the biggest like, version win uh as soon as she got out of school i mean even then like this was before world championship but she uh she won her first elite national championship title as a, she was still e 23 and won that race by like five minutes. And it was just like a merciless, just slaughter. And, uh, it was amazing. And like, you know, she had never raced an elite national championship before, let alone, you know, won one or anything like that. And so, yeah. uh, that first year after she got done with school officially, uh, like her performance was just so shockingly improved. Mm-hmm. Over the past year, and it was not bad before either. You know, I was right. like, "Wow, that's like an incredible just change over the winter time." And just the way she sat on the bike and pedaled it, it was totally different. She also switched coaches, and her her new coach, uh, well, he's not new now, but he's he's been a he's been a coach for many successful athletes over the years. But he became her coach in 2016, 2017. Jim Miller uh, mm-hmm. is his name. He's a, a very accomplished guy, and uh, he he really, I think kind of got a hold of Kate and saw, you know, some, obviously the same potential that anyone who spends time with her sees in her and figure out how to harness her energy and her attitude um, and challenge her to kind of maybe take it to a level she'd never really taken it before and the results were immediate. And um, I think that when she has good results, this might be her Achilles heel sometimes, uh, when she has good results, she works even harder. You know, and she's motivated by her own success and her own achievements to see how much farther she can go. Um, at times, she maybe as a young rider has, if, if there's a fault, uh, it would be taking that motivation and training maybe even a little bit too hard and then perhaps has found herself in situations where she may, maybe had not recovered fully and yeah. had to actually face again. But um, mm-hmm. short of those occasional moments, I mean, her, her results are super consistent. It's not a fluke. You can't look at anything she's ever done and be like, well, she won, but, you know, like she, she won world championships and then came out and backed it up with a short track win, mm-hmm. cross country win, the first World Cup the next year, third place, and then a win at the next World Cup the next weekend. And then did the double again at Leger. I mean, at this point, she's like almost, you know, I mean, she, she's one of three or four who are, the money's on those four, you know, at every right. race now. And uh, everyone kind of forgot how in 2018 they were, like, kind of surprised that she won Worlds. Now it's, like, a surprise when she doesn't win, you know. <laughs> and so yeah. uh, that's a lot of pressure to, to take on, I guess. Um, I think she likes a little bit of pressure and a little bit of expectation because it's motivating for her to 
meet or exceed that and those expectations. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's still we still have the, those moments of imposter syndrome uh, yeah. all the time, and even like this spring, the one race we actually got to do after we got back from Cyprus. Uh, mm-hmm. which was for the you know stage race we did. We got to go to Vail Lake um, for the season opener that we normally nice. do, the U.S. Cup race uh, mm-hmm. in Southern California. And we only got to race short track that weekend because they canceled the cross country um, for the you know for the whole virus situation uh, yeah. during that weekend. But we got to race the short track, and it was the first time she'd ever won a short track in the United States, um, which is funny to say because she's won so much across the world at the highest level, but had never quite put it together. Um, for a short track, even though she won World Cup short tracks somehow. So that was like actually a goal going into the weekend, and she did win. Um, we talked a lot about tactics, and Jim, her coach, was also talking with her a lot about tactics. And short tracks is the kind of race you can't win on pure power because it's too short, and everyone who's there, you know, are professional athletes, and they can ride hard for 30 minutes. And so yeah. you have to be a little bit more thoughtful in how you approach your effort and how to win the race. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, that had kind of been like, she was for sure has been the strongest one in the race a number of times and didn't win in the past. And so, um, you know, she likes to use these races to gauge her fitness as well as her, you know, general improvement over years past. And, sure. um, after winning that, she had a ton of confidence, you know, she kind of finally got that little monkey off her back to it and won a U.S. short track, which was neither here nor there really in the grand scheme of it, but, um, just a nice thing to, you know, you, I mean, it was like, Nino when he won short track at snowshoe last year in the last world cup of the season, that was the first time he won a world cup short track, even though he's the most winning cyclist in the history of cross country mountain biking. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, it was still nice to get that win, you know, even after he won totally. some of the other stuff. So it was really sad because, you know, she was really coming into her form. She was stronger than probably, you know, it's hard to say, but I believe stronger than she'd ever been wow. at the beginning of the year, you know, and was really starting to kind of tune it up towards cross country specific efforts mm-hmm. with the our season being a stage race and like marathon distance stage race. Uh, that was the kind of, sunshine cup. Yeah, it, it was good. I mean, you know, she won with Annika Langbad as a partner, mm-hmm. which is always a help. She won the Cape Epic in 2018. So that was the first stage race Kate had ever done. Uh, she, she never even raced two days in a row before. Um, oh, wow. And managed to win the Cape Epic. Um, you know, and she gives a lot of credit to Annika, who, who set a hard pace that Kate kind of just hung on to for eight days, but that's still, still got to hang on, and that's not easy, and that's no one huge. else could. And uh, yeah. she was 20, barely 22. I think she was only 22 years old at the time, so mm-hmm. a huge lesson. Uh, at a type of and a discipline and a type of racing she's not accustomed to doing and this was then the second effort um but it was at the beginning of the season and she kind of didn't want to put all of her eggs in the marathon distance basket because when she did that for cape epic um she kind of came out flat for the start of the cross-country season including the Stellenbosch world cup that followed two weeks later mm-hmm. um she didn't really have that high intensity uh to perform in what is kind of her chosen discipline or the one that she wants to be the best in. And so, um, you know, Cyprus was like an appearance. It was a a good, hard training block. It was kind of a good fitness test, just like a self-evaluation, but it wasn't really meant to be like, we didn't go there to win the race necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, it was more just like seasoned kind of opener, low stress, you know, 
go do it. It was a new race for us. We had not ever been to Cyprus, even though it's been, you know, a big race on the calendar for a lot of Europeans since like the late 90s, I think 97 or 98. But yeah, um, we'd never gone. So it was cool. Uh, beautiful place. Loved it. The racing was great. Um, the whole environment, honestly, was like a little bit already kind of clouded by the anxiety of uh, the COVID-19 mm-hmm. like explosion because it was sort of taking place and all the news and like new developments were happening like while we were there to the point that when we were leaving, we're like, God, I hope we can get off the plane when we get to San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, we got off the plane. We still got to go what we thought to Vail Lake uh, to race. But, you know, even as I was driving down there, I was getting updates and texts and seeing things on my phone about L.A. closing, you know, public gatherings. I was like, how are we going to even race? Uh, and ultimately, we barely got to. But, um, you know, for somebody like Kate, or any, I mean, any pro rider who takes himself seriously, the whole winter time is spent, like, torturing yourself and denying yourself life's pleasures in order to be super fit in the spring. So right. to go through all that and have it sort of the rug pulled out from under you, uh, right, as it's about to get going and everything you've been working hard doing all the sacrificing for is not, you know, allowed anymore. I yeah. think it's a bit of a psychologically and emotionally difficult thing to process. I think she's fine, but sad. And uh, being an Olympic year, her first Olympic appearance and something that, you know, that's been a big, a big focus for many seasons, not just, you know, last year has been before you're built toward this. And uh, so, um, you know, there's some, some lingering sadness, especially with it still being such an uncertain timeline, you know, mm-hmm. like we're hopeful that we will race and like race World Cups, you know, not just drive, you know, to LA and race a kind of local race, but mm-hmm. hopefully we're going to be doing some real racing this year. Latest I've heard is like August would be the optimistic first opportunity. Um, with some racing expected to go into October at this point. Um, yeah. Trying to schedule trans- stuff. Make the World Cup in as possible, but like we might be basically going to Europe for like three months at the end of the summer or into fall, you know, and never yeah. coming home because for us to travel back and forth would be counterproductive and, uh, right. you know, and actually a detriment to her performance potentially just being kind of constantly jet lagged, even though, you know, she's pretty good at sleeping on planes, much better than me, but um, still, you know, flying back and forth two or three times in the span of six or seven weeks, it would be, you know, that would be too much. So we're kind of trying to stay optimistic and right. positive of the prospects for the season because they, totally. it will still matter. Um, like it results in those races, even though the season's it's not a wash, but it's like, one of those seasons that will have an asterisk next to it forever because it was so odd. Um, You know, she's still, because of the way that the Olympic start positions are, are earned or or decided, Mm -hmm. not on like your UCI ranking, um, for which she's currently number one, uh, and the UCI is frozen all points. So like she will remain number one until racing is like officially unfrozen numbers. Mm -hmm. Points gathering is unfrozen by the UCI. Um, but it's by your by like your UCI points um, at the time, and so basically, and like that's up till you know the last minute, basically right before the Olympics. So you know all the in races will contribute to that, 
and it's like the your year, you know, your prior year's race uh, results and the subsequent points you've earned will determine the start position for the Olympics. So she still has to go. You can't like skip or more mm-hmm. phone it in or anything like that. Like you still have to somehow the next months remain fit and strong and train totally. and do all the things you would, but not maybe like to the final maximum level that you would right before you start really towing the line at big races, but it would mm-hmm. be basically like maintaining the base level fitness to where it would take very little to be kind of as fit as she was at Vail Lake the last time we raced. And, uh, yeah. you know, for, for riders and for any athlete, I think it's, um, like physically you can do that, but just the psychological part of that is the real struggle. And I think you're seeing a lot of athletes, uh, opening up about that. Sure. Kate among them. She recently had a pretty well, um, presented perspective, uh, that was published in the wall street journal that uh, was, you know, it was a big, big article to get published, but, um, it it put it all in perspective like quite well. And I thought very, uh, succinctly and Mm -hmm. for someone who was literally living the the stress uh, to put that article together, I thought was a classy move. And, um, you know, she, she can do what she said she was hoping to do in that article, which is to just kind of, enjoy the things that are still enjoyable and not let the clouds kind of get in the way too much. And, uh, yeah, once I figure out how to open up things and when and give us a timeline, like that will make everything clear. And, uh, yeah. So what is that burden? But for now it's just like, so uncertain that like it leaves a lot of room for questioning and stress. Absolutely. What does work look like for you until races and gets turned back on? Like what's, yeah, you know, our team, I think a lot of teams are struggling now with uh, how to make it worth sponsors while uh, during these times where, you know, traditionally we would just be racing and letting the results speak for themselves. And it's a pretty straightforward formula and there's not a lot of um, creativity required, you yeah. know, and like Kate and I sort of have a lot of fun doing bike check videos and, and stuff that I think our sponsors appreciate and mm-hmm. uh, because they're like entertaining and fun and Sure. And people like them and uh so now we've sort of taken that a little more to heart because we're, that's kind of what we've got at this point is like yeah. what, what can we do that's like both lighthearted and fun and not like depressing mm-hmm. to talk about constantly because all you do is hear about this shit over and over again so we don't really want to like be beating that drum any more than it already is but also like acknowledging it but also like presenting things favorably but also acknowledging people don't want to really buy anything so it's like a pretty tough balance of like how do you even i mean bike racing is just glorified marketing anyway and so like how mm-hmm. do you uh justify whether you're a sponsor you know paying for this when there's nothing happening and as a uh, as a team like how do you expect to be paid for something that you can't deliver on which uh you know was the agreement in the first place so yeah. you know we have good obviously good relationships with our sponsors who've been with our, our team for you know consistently for a very very long time and have already extended into the future and mm-hmm. uh, and so you know now we're just sort of trying to create open lines of communication with what what would be helpful for them you know being more available at this time of the year in particular for somebody like Kate or Nino uh, mm-hmm. to do more kind of interviews or podcasts or video things or, you know, whatever the case may be. And if it's like self-filmed stuff. And, um, so 
so you know and so the whole team is kind of contributing in various different ways and uh, oh, cool. just trying to keep keep the spirit up and keep the you know people aware of the situation as much as possible without depressing them about other situations and maybe yeah. about that you know so it's tough but for me personally um you know i'm in touch with kate like every day mm-hmm. just whether well, it's just to say hello and how are you doing or send a picture of a you know animal i saw while i was walking outside you never know but like yeah. um, <laughs> you know it's, it could be anything but it's just you know yeah. we're, we're still in touch and obviously there's more to talk about than that too and we mm-hmm. also talk about bike stuff and you know at times we, we refer to me as dialing mechanic because i don't live right around the corner from kate i'm like an hour and a half to two hour drive and so yeah we do a lot of like facetime calls where you know i get to be look at whatever she's seeing through her phone camera and can kind of be the brain and let her hands do, you know, what I tell them to do. Mm-hmm. And if she needs to do little things to her bike or find something in the garage that I've organized in there, you know, I can help. Well, thanks to Brad for taking the time to talk with us. And thanks to Jero for recording this interview. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.